The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. At 40 Strategy, we work with CEOs and their leadership to reach a new destination by learning how to maximize people, processes, systems as one effective team. If you want to learn more about this, please go to 40strategy.com. Before we introduce our guests, I'd like to do a special shout out to Jeremy Wise. Jeremy is one of the founders of Rise25, who helped us launch the Measure Success podcast, and we'll always be grateful for his efforts with that. And Jeremy was kind enough to introduce us to our current guest, Richard Pollack. Thank you, Jeremy. Absolutely. Absolutely, Jeremy. So Richard is uh, really excited to have him on board today. He is a, has a 40-year span of, of working with companies in more than 90 countries around the world for creating and structuring world-class benefits in HR programs. His research, presentations, articles, subject e- expertise, and trading program with IBIS Academy, the world's longest-running international HR conference, it was world-renowned. In 2012, Pollock merged his company, IBIS Advisors, and with his conference, IBIS Academy, and a deal with Arthur J. Gallagher & Company. This created the International Department of Gallagher and the role on the Executive Committee and the Executive VP, multi- Multinational Benefits and HR Consulting Services, a position he held for six years before deciding to reinvest into entrepreneurship. Today, Richard is a global advisor for dozens of companies and organizations around the world. Uh, he advises on productivity by working smarter, not harder. His book, Work Smart, now was the number one release on Amazon in April 2021. He is also a proud member of the American Benefits Council and Forbes HR Council. Richard, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So excited with, first of all, tell us what you're doing a little bit more today. You know, what's, what's keeping you busy? You obviously have this massive international focus. You've got a global map in the background behind you there. Tell us a little bit more about your current business and what you do. Yeah, well, I'm a consultant and that's what I've always been actually my whole career. I moved in early in my career into global consulting, global human resources consulting, which turned actually, you know, it used to be back when there were personnel managers. Now they're human resources directors. And now the human resources directors are more than that. They've become business professionals and they've had to, to keep up with the business because the CEOs are relying on them for business decisions, not just hiring and firing or administration. So I'm doing a lot of business consulting now, which is essentially helping employers attract and retain and increase productivity and trying to show them the research and the work we've done, everybody, not just me, but I mean, plethora of data that shows how you can increase productivity with actually having them work, not less so much, but working the same, the same and more of a commitment to engagement, but not work any harder. 
So that's why I wrote the book, Work Smart Now. And, and your book, I love some of the statistics that you bring up in the book. And, and let's, I want to talk about some of those right now because they're, they're pretty astounding. 39% of workers are depressed. This was before, this was in December 2008, before COVID hit. 72% have daily stress and anxiety interfering with their lives. There, this results in a 50% reduction in productivity. I'm curious now, okay, here's this data set, COVID's happened and everything around COVID. What, what, what are the numbers today? What, what are, how has this changed? How are people less engaged? Are they more depressed? What, what's some of the current data that you've been seeing as a result of everything that's been taking place uh, uh, due to COVID? Well, the greatest data that shows cause and effect is the great resignation people are talking about today, right? I think it was last month, 4.4 million people resigned from their jobs, weren't let go, weren't laid off, were not furloughed chose to leave their positions to go elsewhere. So I've been, I've been banging on CEOs doors for years now saying, if you don't do something about this, change your way of thinking about how to motivate employees, then they'll just leave when the opportunity arrives. And they are. And that's the data. That's the newest data that shows that it's in fact true. The burnout, there's all kinds of data that shows burnout and there always has been. Whether it's increased now, I, there's no doubt the data shows it has. But there's a reason, too, that it might be because there's more of awareness of it. Uh, mental health has never been a, more of a greater topic on the, at the board table than it ever has been. I mean, you have diversity now, and then behind diversity just a little bit is mental health. Diversity is still number one in our country, but mental health is a really fast, fast runner number two. So I'm curious about that when, when there is this more awareness, right? And, and obviously people are leaving their jobs. So what, what are, you know, historically the number one reason people left their job was because they didn't like their manager, right? Mm-hmm. Is that still true today or is there other things around that? No, I, I believe that's still true. It's, it's, it's too much of a, of a throwaway line to say it's always the manager because it isn't. But you can pay somebody, studies show you can pay somebody, pay somebody up to 25% less if they have a good manager and if they're motivated and they have loyalty and that purpose and engagement, they like the firm they work with. You can definitely do that. And they're fine with it. They'd rather do that. And these people that resign, most of them, almost all of them have no jobs to go to and they're want purpose in their lives. I know when we're hiring people, it's a whole different world. Now we're getting all kinds of, of people that are coming from different professions, like lawyers that just can't work the 80 hours a week anymore that these big law firms ask them. They can, but choose not to. Same with these very high-end consulting firms, which we all know the names of. There's just pure burnout. And even if it's not burnout, because they're young enough to hold on to themselves, <laughs> it's just they choose not to. It's just so this is not important to them. So, so I'm curious about, let's go to the company for a minute, right? They have a model that's built on 60 to 80 hour working weeks for their associates, right? So they can help make their... Right. Let, let's go to the top level. Let, let's, let's let's reveal some things that people may not about. If you're a top of a major accounting firm, a legal firm, uh, a business consulting firm, you're often making seven figures or more, right? And and so they're doing this, right, because they have overworked, really smart professionals that are working underneath them. At forty is a lucky week, right? That's a vacation week. Um, you know, they're, they're putting in 65, 80 hour weeks to to do something. Now you're saying 
these really smart people are are leaving because they're like they're not willing to go up to the level to make seven figures because they have other things that are more important in their life, work-life balance, whatever it might be. They're sick of being tired. They're sick of, of, of doing these different areas. So what are companies now doing that are stuck in a, a model, right? That they're used to this and now people aren't wanting to come towards it. How are they? They aren't necessarily changing. There's, there's a lot of people out in the marketplace looking for jobs because they've left their jobs, right? There is still not enough people in the market, in the labor market to fill all the jobs, but that's, that's another issue. I was, just, I was just speaking to a firm last week and they hired 17 new people. And every time they hired somebody new, the manager would put it up on LinkedIn. We just hired this person. And wow, it looked like great growth. But when you look behind the kimono, uh, they lost 14 people that year. All right, that's a, that's a fact. That's a, that's a fact, fact, fact. I mean, it's not only that firm. So they really only grew a very small percentage. And in fact, may not have grown at all because the cost of turnover is much greater than three, adding three people to your top line. Or bottom line, actually. Right, right. So that's a fascinating part, right? So you have this massive loss of, of knowledge, right? That, that always go through. As much as we think everything is processed and documented, there's still experiential knowledge, right? If somebody has been around, they're aware of all the things that aren't documented. They're aware of a customer and the way I used to treat them, aware how you how you handle a vendor, right, in a certain particular area. That goes away. What is what is they saying today? What's the current data of of how much it costs you when you lose somebody in terms of? Oh, it could cost you up to two two and a half times their salary. Wow. wow. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many numbers that fall into that sure. uh, because there's the cost of recruitment, there's cost of retraining, there's cost of lost customers, there's cost of low engagement. All those things add up to about two and a half times that salary. It's really dumb uh, to lose people, uh, particularly the ones you want to keep. Mm. I mean, their firms, like I said, I don't, I don't really see them changing. I'm, I'm shocked, but I don't see them changing because they don't know how to change. You know, they need people like you to teach them how to change, quite honestly. But they sit there and do the same thing over and over again, and then they blame the person and the people who are leaving. So I'm going to throw out a book here that you know, The Innovator's Dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've read about this. The late Clayton Christensen read this book. And, and the dilemma, right, is when people are having things so good, and, and once again, you go to these partners and large firms where they're making wonderful salaries and they're doing well, they view it as new generation. They don't know how to work hard. What's this work-life balance? Don't they know if you, if you do what I'm doing, they're going to do is great. Something's going to fill that void, I feel, in the future. Because you've already mentioned, you kind of put in there, hey, there's not enough people to get these jobs anyways, right? So what's going to be... What do you see as... Because as, I don't think some of these things, that these models that are existing... It, if you're telling me they're not changing, something is going to fill the void. Yeah, it would be entrepreneurs, it would be smaller, younger companies, right? That, maybe that's what you were leading to, but there's no doubt about it. There, I've always made a major proponent of smaller better is better. You see it over and over again. I mean, one of the greatest examples, in my opinion, is Southwest Airlines. Boy, when they started out, there was no other airline like it a brilliant business model. All their planes were the same. They got people before they started. If you remember, I mean, it was a long time ago. I don't know how many people out there remember, but when the plane hit, 
hit the gate, right? And the jet bridge came up. They would sit there and wait and wait. We'd all be going, I want to get out of here, right? And then somebody would come up and say, okay, welcome to LAX. Your gate, hold on, wait, you can't get off yet until I finish my announcement here. And then may a whole announcement of where they're getting. And if you want this and there's layover there and there's something to eat out front. Meanwhile, everybody just wanted to get off. Now Southwest changed that whole culture, right? They came in and said, we're going to stop. We're going to let you off. You're going to get on. You find whatever seat you can get on. We're going to move really quick, okay? It was a brilliant concept. Now, that CEO, how could I forget his name? Callahan, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Now he's gone, but the company's growing. And by the way, it's really hard because every company has to grow, grow or die, right? You just have to do it. Right. Keeping that culture is almost impossible. In fact, the only way I can think of doing it is breaking up a company when it gets too big and separating it. And that will also help others with positions and to, for themselves to be entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. I mean, companies are starting to do that in a bit. Some of them are but not enough. These big companies are just too big and they just can't change and they're elephants and, and the smaller, younger, more vibrant companies are the ones that are going to fill that gap. So many, so many different areas you can go on this, Richard, because it just, I love different concepts behind it. When, when you're trying to, when you're recommending to people and you said some aren't changing, what are the best practices that you're like, here's the three things. If you aren't doing these three things to make sure that you aren't being the most attractive company in the world to, to be with. What are those three things that's setting those companies apart from everyone else? I, I don't know that there's even three, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, there's two words that I've come up with. I don't even know that I came up with them because they're two simple words, but compassionate productivity, mm-hmm. okay? You need to be compassionate your employees. You really need to honestly care about them in order for them to work harder for you. They've got to feel that they mean something to you. And if you do as a leader, then they'll do anything for you. They'll, they'll go to war for you. This is what makes great generals. You know, the soldiers love the general. They don't, and, and that's, that just isn't the case that much anymore. They don't trust them. There are some, and they're mostly in smaller firms, right? Yeah, yeah, well, it's, when you, when you brought up what you said, I work with a manufacturing business and it's an incredible turnaround that have taken place. And, and we had, a, there was some headcount changes we had to make to get to there. However, you know, literally backlog grew 10X and then, and then we had a backlog problem, right? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then we changed some people around there and they had their biggest month by 30%. And, and the, the answer, the result that we came out of that meeting was, this is somebody who works in steel, right? This is a manufacturing is completely not related. And he said, no, we're in the, we're in the people business. Hmm. Yeah, this, is, this is an old tech manufacturing. People were grubby and dirty. And he said, no, 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 we're in the people business. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. What you said about there, that compassionate productivity, because it was his care for the team that had never connected. Literally they're not even far away. There's a small company under hundred employees. And, and the people on the floor had barely ever talked with anybody, quote unquote, in the offices. And now all of a sudden they had somebody who came from the front office, came down and actually understood them and they had incredible results. So here we have such a challenging time. Well, you and I get to take advantage of Zoom today, right? And I'm actually quite grateful. Everyone's learned how to use Zoom and other tools like that because people didn't know how to use it just a couple of years ago. But 
this is just my humble opinion. I'm curious about your perspective on it. Hasn't this made it worse from a connectivity standpoint? Is this part of, I guess, as a curiosity and maybe a leading question, have people become less connected because we're, we think that the Zoom call is, and is enough? Well, uh, yes and no, okay? Because no doubt, face-to-face, breaking bread, let's have lunch together, have some coffee, is a much better interaction than being on a Zoom. However, give you an example, okay? There was a, a large UK multinational. And as I said, I'm a global consultant. And they came to me and asked if I might be able to help. And they went out with a RFP, went out with the major firms. And then in the firm um, that I'm working with now as an advisor that came to them and asked me to get involved, I said, this is a really hard one because these decision makers in the UK, we don't have a personal relationship with the decision maker. Those other firms take that person out to lunch, whatever they've, they've been able to do these last two years to develop a personal relationship. We're not, we're not going to be able to do that because personal relationships drive business. Well, when I say yes um, and no, in this case, the firm I'm with, I was working with, got that business because of Zoom. And because the world has changed and because you can connect to people like you've never been able to connect with them before. Now in doing so, um, we've agreed to go to the UK four times a year because the fact of the matter is they weren't seeing their advisor more than that anyway. So we can connect overseas now that you've never been able to do so before. So you can enhance and build your relationships, expand on them and then see them as well, but even less so because of this. You can get best of both worlds if you do it correctly, my opinion. Yeah, yeah. You have, in your book, you talk about this inverted pyramid. That's, that's it reminded me of good to great when it came to kind of servant-based leaders. You want to share with those who haven't had a chance to read your book yet what that means, this, this inverted pyramid? No, they have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, we'll go to the next question. <laughs> All right, okay, the inverted pyramid is, well, most companies, well, I don't know how to start it necessarily, but here's what it comes down. And most companies, money's first, right? Uh, then the customer second, and then the employees uh, third. Almost most public companies, certainly, okay? But many, many companies, most companies that way. I want to turn it around. And I've always said this, and this is the way I run my companies. The employees first, just like you said, we're in the people business. Employees first, you treat your employees well, They'll treat the customer as well. The customer is always second. Customers come and go, but your employees will be there for a lifetime, for a full career. I mean, ideally. And then money always follows. I've done it over and over again in several different firms, several organizations. This advice I give, and it never fails. It's, it's amazing to me how others don't see it so clearly because it's good business. It's not just about teaching people, treating people well, or caring about them. It's good business to care about people. You'll make yeah. more money. No, exactly. And I, and I love, I love that thinking around it. And I think this is a real struggle for, you know, I work with some investment companies, right. And, and they have a goal, right. There's no different than a publicly traded company. They're trying to get a return. And so they focus on that return. But what you described is the profit is a lagging indicator. Yes. That's it's a lagging great. indicator of the success with a first having great employees 
who could move the engine to have great customers. And those long, those happy customers is what provides the great profits. You know, it reminds me, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine who runs one of these hedge funds, very, very successful. It's the CEO of the hedge fund. And I said, how do you compete with these other firms where all that matters is how much return you've provided to your customers on their investment? I mean, is it? And he goes, no, no, Richard, you have it all wrong. So it's people hire us and me and the people because there's three reasons they hire us. The first one is because they like us. The second one is because they trust us. And the third one is because we happen to make them a little bit of money. But that's not why they hire us. They don't compare us on the basis points that are so small because the first two are more important. Very interesting to me because I always thought that business ran just by the, by the figures. It doesn't. Every business then does, but that one doesn't. So if employees are your most important asset, you know, the most important thing in the inverted pyramid that we should be focusing on, what is that most important metric that we should be tracking to know that we're, we have a great employee-centered company? I, it, it, it all goes up to one metric. But I'll talk about a couple others first because absenteeism and presenteeism are really important. Absenteeism is really clear. You're absent, you're not there, you're not working. If you're presenteeism means you're present, but you may as well, as well be absent, <laughs> right? Because you're not really focused on what you're doing, even when you're doing it and not on your iPhone or playing whatever football fantasy you're doing at the time. And then there's well being, okay? Some call it wellness, it's name changes. That's really critical, how people are treated. And you give them help on how to help themselves, optimizing their workday. This is, this is all the tenets in, in my book. But they ultimately lead to one thing, and that's engagement. Okay? And there's a, it's, it's, it's a number that the Gallup poll comes up with every year. I mean, it's talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 56% of people are not engaged at work. I mean, it's crazy, right? And if you just think about it, if you're not engaged at work, then you're not producing. You're not making widgets or whatever you're doing, you're not making it. The more you can get people engaged through all these other uh, means and resources, the harder they'll work and the more money you'll make. So engagement is the number one indicator. And that's uh, the, way you, the way I evaluate it. And there's some really brilliant engagement people that have uh, do unbelievable surveys and able to really pinpoint where it is. And I've seen it done too, where that's the CEO says, we're going to do this survey and we're going to find out exactly what the problem is here. And, and then they tell them the problem. <laughs> and the problem is we're not communicating with employees. We're not communicating. That was a big problem in one of these firms I was, was with. And then, okay. And then a year later went by, they did the engagement survey. Problem again is we're not communicating because they haven't communicated. They haven't done it. They didn't make any change. That's why I was talking about the change right. and the lack of change. Really hard to make change, particularly the larger the firm is. So engagement is the key to everything. I love that. And, and yeah, I'm a big fan of, of the Gallup polls. I appreciate you bringing that up of, of that. It's interesting on the customer side. That's the, the other part. I don't know if how much you track net promoter score, but it's 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 this, it's not refer, you know being able to refer basically somebody else to love your product, right? That's the ultimate sign. Yeah. So, do you ever use that employee net promoter score? Have you ever seen that or done where where you're measuring based on how much people are likely to recommend somebody to come to work 
for that same company? Have you ever seen companies do that and use that type of measurement? No, I don't. We don't use it much. It's a great barometer. It should be, but it's not. Um, the the issue. I was gonna uh, gonna say the 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 point the with the engagement surveys they can measure how much somebody's engaged right and they'll give you a percentage point and then the idea is to do it six months later the survey six months later after you've made the changes that are recommended by the employees to make and then you'll see an uptick you're supposed to see an uptick in it that's the to me the best way to measure whether your engagement is improving that's uh, because that's very specific only after you've done the work to do so and, and, and forgive the dumb question, but I'm assuming there's a correlation with higher engagement. It's less likely somebody's going to leave and resign. Oh, all that, all that. Less, yeah. Not just that, less likely to be absent. They're less sick. There's a less mental illness and, and less dread disease, all those things, a lot less. Now, the answer, there was a joke I read a long time ago in a company called, there's a company called demotivators.com and there's a joking poster that they have up and the poster was, well, just fire all the unhappy people, right? That, that, that's not really a good solution. So how do you get, quote unquote, this disengaged group of people to be, you know, mentioned communication, but it's like, so what about communication, right? What, what are some of the most common things that somebody's doing to turn that around where people are going to be like, okay, I'm more engaged because you mentioned something you kind of said on the side there. Somebody's checking out their fantasy football ratings. You know, they're looking at Facebook, they're looking at Instagram, you know, TikTok, whatever for the latest part. They're not engaged in work. That's a habit, right? Somebody has a habit. They're disengaged at work because they've created a habit that they're doing 24 hours. What are people doing to get people to recognize that that's maybe not the best thing they should be doing in their life? So they, they, they start doing better habits today. All right. Well, there's, there's, there's a writer who wrote a book called Atomic Habits, and he has some tools in that. There's all kinds of cognitive behavioral therapy, which seems to be very, very popular. There's better therapy that it could help with something like that, because these things turn into addiction. I have a son who's 15 years old, and I can't get him off of that PS5. I mean, he's just not allowed to use it. And, you know, he gets a half hour a day, and then he gets his four hours on the weekend, and that's it. But if I didn't have those controls over him, he'd be on it all the time. He'd be brain dead. Yeah. All right. Now, this is important, though, because you talk about those disengaged people. There is a certain percentage, and I estimate it's somewhere between 5 and 8% of every workforce that will never be engaged in your firm. Mm. Okay? You, you make bad hires. We make them. Okay? You can't help. When you hire somebody, as much as you interview them, you can give them testing, all that doesn't matter. You're rolling the dice that they come out and they become a superlative person. And then you, and then even then they won't. Most people are, if you can make mediocre, just five percentages above mediocre. You're doing really well because most people just are that way. But if you have the slackers, you got to get them out and that's management and everything. And in the book is about accountability. Just because you care about somebody doesn't mean they, they're not accountable. They have a job to do. It's for the organization, even the custodian, whatever it is, the, the person that sweeps the floor, they all really have to be very, very important to the, to the bottom line of the company and, be, and know they are. And if they're not doing their job, they have to move on. Doesn't, now, there's much compassionate. I don't even like to use firing. I, whenever I let somebody go, that's the words I use. I have to let you go. This is not the place for you. There's a better place for you. 
the world is already set up that if everybody finds where they're supposed to be, it would be perfect. So I'm going to help you find where you're supposed to be, but it's not here. And that's what we need to do. And often very difficult to do that. But you're helping yourself and really helping the individual when you let them go in a place that they're not supposed to be. I love that. That's a, I just recently, it's interesting with related to some of my book work I'm doing. I was asking people, what do you do when you talk with somebody? But that's one of the best answers I've seen is I, I have to let you go because there's a better place for you. And, and because, and, and they typically know that too, right? The person in that situation. I mean, don't you find that or people who are really struggling with their job, they can't find a fit. They're also pretty upset. Yeah. About well, they know well. it before you do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Now, plus these firms that have, they go, oh, we have a 2% turnover. Okay. Then they got a problem. That's right. right? Now, why is that? Why is that a problem? Because, because it's natural and it's healthy to have a reasonable amount of turnover, which could be 5%. And that's okay because you want those people out. That means to me, if you have a 2%, 1%, we have no turnover, then you're overpaying them or you're providing benefits that they can't get somewhere, or it's just not, it's, it's impossible to have mm. that much of a high performing group. That doesn't mean you, now GE used to operate like this. I'm not for it at all. They said to every manager, I want the top 10% of your workforce gone by December 31st. You choose which one of the 10 people that you have on the team to let go. And they required them to do so. I don't believe in that. Because you can have a ten, you can have a group of ten people and a great manager that's already did clean it out, and then got ten great people, and you're telling them to get rid of one of his good people. That's just dumb. Where somebody over here has ten people that should have been let go a long time ago and running a bad department. You know those blanket statements that that employers say. I love it when they do that. They say, "Oh, we're going to have unlimited vacation. Everybody can take as much time as they want." Right? It, it's garbage. Doesn't work. It, what happens is, and I've seen it happen in these firms, they realize what, a, what great words they are. And then when somebody goes on vacation and in these cultures in some of these firms is, all right, going to vacation. But when you come back, you're not going to have a job. Mm. So it's just talk. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. That's it. Okay. So engagement is clearly the number one indicator from a business perspective that you care about. And that, 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 you said that pretty clearly. So now let's pop over the, the personal side and we're just going to ask a couple questions about this. Um, you, you are continuously telling people, recommending, you just said it there, you got to have accountability, you got to have habits, right? You got to do the right type of things to make sure they're running a company. You've had your own companies, you know? So what do you do on a personal basis to help make sure, you know, you're, you're, Managing and consulting companies around the world, uh, which is not easy. We talked about this before the call when you have to have calls at 5 a.m. and sometimes at 10 p.m., depending on where they are, or, or sometimes in the middle of the night. What are you doing on a regular basis to help make sure you're keeping on top of your game? Okay, thank you. First, it's a journey, and it's a journey for everybody. I'm not perfect at this. I could have, I've written a book about it, and I'm still helping myself by reading the book that I wrote that's helping me to do better with <laughs> the book I wrote. Okay, I have a treadmill desk next to me. It's, um, I'll try to get on that every day, at least a half hour. Once I went as long as three hours on it. And you can work on these things, by the way. I go out and I have my conference calls as much as I can. It's hard now with Zoom, right? But outside while I'm walking, 
I'll try to get the best night's sleep I can. You know, I wrote an article, it was for Forbes, it was published in Forbes about productivity be begins before you go to work. And this is really, this is what I prescribe, uh, subscribe to myself is I, I do whatever I can to get to bed by 10 o'clock at night. Even if there's a great show on, like we love this show, Ted Lasso. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's a great, it is a great one. <laughs> we just love it. And my son and my wife, we're all sitting around watching this. And my son goes, Dad, one more episode, one more episode. <laughs> and it's 10, it's five minutes to 10. And then I, I put them, no, it's 10 o'clock. Let's get to bed. I got to be in bed by 10. And that's it. If I don't get to bed by 10, I'm grogging the next morning and so on. So everything's preparing you for the next day to be productive, including getting up at the right time, getting good night's sleep, like I said, eating a proper breakfast, getting some sort of movement. I'll walk for an hour in the morning before I start working. So whatever you can do yourself, that's what I do. At the same time, by the way, which is equally as important, is my own mental health development. I happen to be in psychoanalysis. I think that's the pinnacle of, of getting to know yourself deep, deep down, what makes you tick and really essentially what's making, what's holding you back from ticking. And that, that really helps me in my life greatly. And then I have a whole two other components of that. I have a, a very strong spiritual life. I believe greatly in a higher power. And I believe there's a soul and a body and the soul goes on that we don't just die. and thump, There's nothing left. It's a, for me, that's an impossible thought. Considering where you, where you have this in you, you can't find it, but it's there. And then I listen to my wife. Those are really the three, my mental health, my spiritual health, and I listen to my wife. <laughs> and all, all those things make me successful. And happy wife makes happy life, as, as we both know. So that, that's great insights. I appreciate you providing some details behind your daily habit. Now I'm curious, are you, are you a quote unquote a 5 a.m. consistent no. person? Or what, what do you do on the, the morning side? You you just get up when you're ready. I'm kind of curious what you do to get that going. That one no, part. Well, it took me a long time, by the way, too, with one other part I left out, I try to nap every day hmm. and all you have to do is get 10 minute nap and, and you got to train yourself to do it because it's hard to do it. But once you train yourself to do it, you really feel restful after 10 minutes. Might go 20, but you don't want to go over 20 because you get groggy. I will ask this one question is how do you measure success on a personal basis? Oh, how many people I help and make happy. Uh, in fact, I'm at the stage of my career where that's what I want to do. Young people, I want to help. And in fact, the firm hired me just to do that. I help them with their training. I help them improve their consulting skills. I sit with them on phone calls. I help them with their larger accounts. And, and it's all about making the next generation better. I believe that, I, I, you know, somebody uh, said uh, to me, look, Richard, you know, there's how many billions of stars in the sky? And um, when you pass on in two generations, they won't even know, nobody will even remember who you are, right? So how do you expect to make an impact? And it really struck me. And I thought to myself, the only way I think I can make a, an impact is to help the next generation be better. And that includes my family and that includes those I work with because business is just a reason to have relationships, right? That's all it is. That's the only reason it was given to us is so we can build relationships and make things better. So if I can make the next generation better than me and my generation, and then the next one better than that, then eventually we'll have a perfect world. Has to, if we all just keep getting better. 
I appreciate those insights there. I think it's great that you have that mindset and you care so much to, to that's how you're, you're making a difference in the world. And, and I love that too, because I think often people always, there's this tendency to think the younger generation is, is it's always getting worse, you know, and, and I don't think that's true. I think actually some of the insights of some of the younger, earlier generations of that, I don't have to work 80 to 85 hour weeks to make a difference in the world. If they can, if they can fill that time with meaning, right? Just to clarify, Richard, I'm not saying replace that with Netflix time, right? Even though Ted Lasso might be an exception, but at the end of the day, they're doing things that are truly valuable, really going to be making a difference. I love it that you have that mindset of, of trying to help others out to be, be more successful. So I like to ask all my guests, of course, you know, your book, you know, Work Smart Now, I, I'll recommend, and we are recommending to our, to our guests and people who are listeners on the Measure Success podcast, What's a book or two that you would recommend to our listeners? I really love, maybe this will surprise you, I don't know, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that or yep, you read yep, that. Yep. Um, I love it because the way it was written and how personal it was and how it was a really true story and of the two dads and how, how to, if you wanted to make money, how to do it. And it was all about compassion too. So I really love that book very much. It is an excellent book. I do very much agree with you. It's an excellent book for those who haven't read uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So where can people find and learn more about you, Richard? RichardPollock.com. And Pollock is spelled P-O-L-A-K. We were the original Pollocks. No two L's, no C. <laughs> RichardPollock.com. Perfect. Thanks, Carl, so much. Yeah, Richard, it's truly been a pleasure. I really appreciate the insights that you have and the expertise. I can understand why people hire you from around the world. I encourage you to go to richardpollock.com to learn more about him. And to everyone else on the podcast, uh, we're wishing you the very best at measuring your success. We wish you a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.